Let's start by talking about the reality of suffering. Not just the fact that it's there, but what it's like. The truth is, when we talk about suffering, we have to admit, we don't want to minimize suffering. That's one of the things that's difficult about dealing with this from a philosophical perspective. We can maybe minimize the suffering that people are, are going through. But we don't want to do that. The truth is, suffering is devastating for its victims, people who are in the midst of suffering, people who feel like evil's been done against them or bad things are happening. It's difficult for them. It can be devastating for them. And the Bible doesn't ignore this reality. In fact, probably the most profound treatise on suffering is in the Scripture. It's called the Book of Job. And it's interesting because it it starts off with this, this picture of Job... Uh, being declared by God in the heavenlies as a righteous man. And you have this person coming in, in Hebrew, he's the Satan, we say Satan. He's the accuser. And he comes and he says, you know what, the only reason Job's a good guy is because God, you've blessed him so much. You remove his blessing and he'll see that he doesn't really love you. He really doesn't trust you. And so God allows Satan to do all these horrible things to Job. And in the first couple of chapters, Job, you know, he still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He still praises God. But you get into chapter 3, and Job begins to feel the devastation of his suffering. And he says this, this is after this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said, a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness, and may God above not care about it, may no light shine on it. You ever felt that way? Ever felt like, I wish I was never born? People have. They go through something that's devastating, and this is what they feel, and we don't want to minimize this. The Scripture doesn't minimize this. But uh, suffering is also sobering for those who are causing suffering. I don't know if you've been on the other end, if you've been able to admit. I think sometimes it's easier to admit what I'm going through that's painful against me than it is the painful things that I've caused. You know, Scripture says, again, in, wisdom, in the wisdom literature of the Scripture, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. And the idea there is not just never sins against God, but also against his fellow man. All of us have been perpetrators of suffering. In fact, here's the truth we need to recognize. We are both victims and perpetrators of suffering. And we don't, want to dev- we don't want to minimize that. We don't, we don't want to, in trying to just deal with our pain, we don't want to suppress it or push it down and act like it's no big deal, people go through worse than me, or what I did wasn't that bad. No, we need to own what we're going through. We need to be willing to, to deal with the fact that what's been done against us is painful and what we've done to others is painful. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons that... Um, Charities spend a lot of money on infomercials is because they work. When you see that child who's, you know, starving, bloated stomach, flies around its eyes, you see that and you go, something should happen. And when they say, look, for a price of a cup of coffee, you can help one of these children, then you think, what am I doing? And so often what we do is because we see that, we think, I should do that, but it's too painful to think about it. I, I have other things I have to think about, so we change the channel. Now, I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying there's a reality that we see suffering, and we know we might be able to do something about it, but we just don't want to do something about it. In that sense, we're also perpetrators. 
This is the reality of suffering. It's a big deal. It's as painful as we're tempted to feel. And we don't want to downplay that. That's the reality of suffering. What about the difficulty? The difficulty of it is not just the pain itself, but we begin to ask questions about suffering. We ask, will suffering finally end? As, as Joe was praying this morning for Tom Chapman, the pastor at Surrey Chapel, he's been battling a brain tumor for 10 years. He passed away this weekend. And Tom's been wrestling with this. It's tough. This is, he was a brilliant man, educated at Cambridge, great Bible teacher, a gospel guy, committed to the gospel of Jesus. And when the, the tumor attacked or where the tumor began to grow in his, his mind, it affected the part of his mind that, that was about speech and reading. Two very important things if you're going to be a preacher. And it was difficult for him to deal with this. Interesting, he has four children because he's had this for 10 years. I believe his oldest is 18. They've all grown up knowing their dad has an illness that will probably take his life. And he's been suffering for a long time and the Lord's taken him home and his suffering has ended, praise God. But guess what? His wife, Suzanne, and their four kids are still hurting. We wonder, is it ever going to end? We begin to ask, can, can meaning ever be found in suffering? Sometimes that's the thing that's most painful about it. It just seems so random. It just seems so pointless. Again, the Bible's honest about this. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the, the author, he writes about this. Listen to this. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 16. The wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool, and the days to come both will be forgotten. We think, okay, maybe, maybe life is just about leaving a legacy, leaving the, the planet better than I found it. Well, maybe you do that and maybe you don't, but guess what? No one's going to remember what you did. That's what he said. He goes on to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, he says, I have thought deeply about that, all that goes on here under the sun, where people have the power to hurt each other. I have seen wicked people buried with honor. Yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless. Has it, it ever bothered you that someone as horrific as Adolf Hitler, he's the easiest guy to go to because it's so obvious, his crimes are so obvious, but has it ever bothered you that he committed suicide? So what did he suffer? His life has ended short. You just think, is that is that Right? And here's the scary thing. He's done crimes. There are people, there are people in Germany now, there's a whole far-right party in Germany now that still honors him. Lord Jesus. Meaningless. Pointless. And what about this? He says again in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11, he says, I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. Doesn't life feel that way? Absolutely random? Who's depressed? <laughs> it's horrible, isn't it? It's difficult. We think about suffering and we, we ask these kind of questions. Is it ever going to end? Are we going to find meaning? And these are honest questions that the Scripture deals with when it comes to suffering. 
It's important that we recognize as well that of the three, what they call the big three worldviews, at least those that dominate the West, the big three worldviews, none of them have an easy answer, a complete answer. What are the big three worldviews? The first one is atheism. Atheism, atheism says suffering is real. This really happens, but God isn't real. And because they say sufferings, because they admit sufferings are real, but they say God isn't real, there's nothing transcendent about our universe. It's just only this closed material universe because that's the case. Meaning is only maybe what you can label something with. There's no ultimate meaning for your suffering. That's what atheism says. Pantheism. Many Eastern religions would be under the the thing of pantheism. Pantheism, where atheism says there's only a material world, there's no transcendent God. Pantheism says the material world and the transcendent God are actually blended together somehow. Now, pantheism says God is real. There's some sort of force or God or gods, but suffering's not. It's an illusion. That might sound strange to you, but if you have an Eastern religious background, if you grew up Hindu or or Buddhist even, you, you understand where that comes from. But it's, it's amazing how many people in the West grasp this. I grew up with my dad having these kinds of mindsets. I remember being 11 years old and having just a raging headache, and I went to the front porch where my dad would usually be found drinking his beers, and, and I said, Dad, I can't find any aspirin. I have a headache. Do we have any aspirin? And he looks at me with a smile on his face, very philosophical my dad was, and he says, well, John, do you think God wants you to have a headache? And I said, I don't, I don't know, Dad. I don't know. He goes, no, seriously, do you think God would want you to have a headache? And I said, well, I guess not. Then you don't have a headache. Go back inside. And I went back inside with a headache. Still there. I think I was maybe 11, maybe 12. And I already knew, that's rubbish. You can't just deny that suffering exists. In fact, to do so belittles the individual suffering, doesn't it? Well, the, the next view is, is theism. Christianity would be under that category of theism. It, it says God is real and suffering is real. Now, theism, listen, doesn't by itself get off the hook because it begs another question that we ask but that's difficult when it comes to suffering. It begs the question, couldn't an all-powerful God do better? I mean, isn't, this, is, this is what stumbles people. This is why people ask us as Christians. They say, wait a second, couldn't, you, you, you believe in a God who's all-powerful? Couldn't he do better about the suffering in this world? And, and the argument kind of goes like this. Listen, if God were good, he would want evil and suffering to cease. If God were all-powerful, he would be able to stop all evil and suffering. So the conclusion is what? Therefore, God cannot be both good and all-powerful. It sounds a bit airtight, doesn't it? It feels sort of true, doesn't it? Now, let me be clear about why this feels true. It feels true, one, because this is what's called uh, a logically consistent argument, but that doesn't mean it's true. There's a difference between something being, being logically consistent but not being true. So it, there's a logical consistency, okay? There's no circular reasoning here, but it's not necessarily true. But it also feels true, listen, because don't forget that, especially you guys who are already Jesus followers, don't forget the Bible says about us that there's something within us, something within our nature that wants to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. We want to push away the idea of God, especially when we're faced with these big issues. 
But it's also listed, it's also not completely consistent. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis, wrote, a, wrote very many great books, one that you all should read called Mere Christianity. Here's what he said. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed cruel and unjust. In other words, he, he was asking this question, could an all-powerful God do better? But how had, got the idea, how had I got the idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I would have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was unjust, not simply that it happened to please my fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. In other words, what, what C.S. Lewis said, and this, is, this makes perfect sense, is that, listen, if I say there's too much evil in the world, the question we have to ask is, well, who says it's evil? Well, we collectively say it's evil. Well, that group says it's okay. And that group says it's evil. So which group has, gets to make the decision? Oh, whichever group has the more power. Oh, okay, so might makes right. And we get into this whole circle of who determines what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. And so you can't even talk about suffering unless you talk about things like morality, ultimate truth. And so C.S. Lewis was saying, look, he felt this. He thought the universe seemed cruel and unjust. But who was I to say what's cruel and unjust? No, if we, if we have a sense of there's a moral absolute, there's a moral law, then we have to believe there's a moral law giver. So to say because of suffering there's no, there can't be a God doesn't make any sense. Now this is not to downplay, and this is not, this is not to minimize what you might be going through this morning. It really isn't. It's, it's to help you think, listen, that God doesn't ignore your suffering. He knows the pain that you're going through. He grieves with you. You guys remember the story in John chapter 11 when Lazarus dies? Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary and this family that was very close to Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus wept when he sees everybody grieving. And we've often tried to spiritualize that and say he's probably just weeping because they don't believe that he can rise him from the dead. And it could be that. But it could just be simply that he's crying about death, that he's grieving for the fact that his friend had died and his friends, other friends, are suffering because of it. We have a God who's compassionate, who grieves over our anguish. And this is where I want to really focus most of our time in. And that is the hope that we can find in suffering. The first thing we need to think about is this. Guys, listen, God is bigger than we think. So that argument that's given, okay, if, you know, God is, if God's all good, he would want evil and, and suffering to, to cease. If God is all powerful, he would be able to stop it. Those are both true premises. These are, these are truth. God is all good. God is all powerful. But he's not just that. God's also all-knowing. Listen to what the scripture says. God says this to the prophet Isaiah. He says, remember the things that I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. God is saying, listen, I'm all-knowing. He's saying to his people Israel, listen, you're thinking you need to go after false gods. You need to look for new answers to, this, to, to explain your situation. 
to why you've landed in this area. And he's saying, listen, you're looking in the wrong places because none of those false gods can tell the end from the beginning. Only I can do that. It's part of an attribute of what makes God, God. He's all-knowing. Can I ask you this? Even if you can't figure out why you're suffering or you can't figure out why there's still so much suffering, even if we collectively can't figure it out, couldn't there still not be a God who knows all, who knows exactly why he's allowing that to happen? Again, I'm not wanting to be tried. I'm wanting us to, to think about where we might find some hope. There's a God who actually knows what he's doing. And he says, listen, what I've, what I've determined is going to happen is going to happen and no amount of suffering is going to stop it. But not just that. God's not just all-knowing. Listen. In fact, let me read this though too because it says in 1 John 3, 2, if our hearts condemn us, uh, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. I think it's important to say that because one of the things that's difficult when we're wrestling with suffering and we're trying to be honest with suffering, we feel like we're teetering between blasphemy and faith. You know that feeling? And when you're teetering in that place, you can start feeling condemned. The, The enemy of our souls Satan, he doesn't just accuse us to God, he accuses us to us. And he wants to tell you, no, you're condemned. If you really believed in God, you would believe he's all-knowing, you'd have peace, everything would be fine. And the scripture tells us clearly, look, even if our hearts condemn us, God knows he's bigger than our hearts. God knows your rustlings, and he loves us still. He loves you still. But God's not just all-knowing. Listen, God's bigger than we think. God is also eternal. Again, Ecclesiastes says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set notice eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Have you noticed how, have you noticed how all of us in one sense, even the, the most adamant atheist wants to live forever? He doesn't want the world or she doesn't want the world to remain the way it is forever, but they, the idea of the end of relationships is painful. We have a sense of things shouldn't end like this. Think about it. The most natural phenomenon in our world is death. And yet it is the thing that grieves us most. It's the thing that tears us up the most. Why? Because there's eternity in our hearts. Our God is eternal, and because he's our eternal, eternal, this what? He said to us, he wants us to be eternal. Referring back to that story with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Before Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Easter is is one of the most attended church days in this country. People who would say they don't believe in God at all go to Easter. What is Easter celebrating? The resurrection of Jesus. Do you realize our entire faith hinges on the reality of the resurrection? Now, that that should make us feel weak. That should should make us realize, you know, wow, that's that's a hugely important and beneficial thing. Listen, when it comes to the resurrection... The evidence for a historical resurrection of Jesus is pretty solid. It's, it's, I wouldn't want to say, I wouldn't want to go far to say, exaggerate to say uh, it's overwhelming, but man, it's pretty hard to deny that the evidence for a resurrected Jesus is pretty clear. 
And because Jesus is alive, he says, even before he's crucified and resurrected, he can say, listen, he can say to Martha, Martha, do you realize that I am the resurrection of life? I'm the eternal God put on flesh right in front of you. So you can know death is not the end. But not just that. Listen, God's bigger than we think. He's not just all all good and all-powerful and all-knowing and eternal, but listen also, he's sovereign. You know what sovereign means? It means God's in control, that he dictates what wants, what needs to happen. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, right? Joseph is kind of a, an arrogant little brother and the favorite of his parents, and his brothers despise him for it, so they con- concoct this plan to basically sell him into slavery and they sell him into slavery and tell her father that oh he's dead and so he ends up being a slave in Egypt and works his way up as the highest slave in the house of a, a, of a rich man named Potiphar Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him Joseph's a godly man refuses to be seduced what happens he goes back into prison as he's in prison, he has these dreams that God gives, or these, actually these other people in prison have dreams. God's given him the ability to interpret the dreams. He interprets the dreams. He finds himself back in Pharaoh's household. And when famine hits the land, God uses, uh, God uses Joseph and his ability to interpret dreams to provide, to make sure that the famine doesn't destroy Egypt and also the famine doesn't destroy his family. And so when his family comes to Egypt for rescue and eventually they realize Joseph is Joseph, the brothers are thinking, oh no, he's going to kill us. He's the second highest in command in Egypt. He's going to kill us. But this is what happens. Listen. Joseph said to his brothers, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. Notice he's not saying, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. (laughs) He's saying, no, you meant evil against me. You wanted me. You wanted my father to think I was dead. You wanted me to be away from you forever. But God meant it for good. In order that he, in order to bring about it as it is this day, to save many people alive. You know, the scripture says a similar thing about all of us that are Jesus followers. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. Listen, do, do you understand what Paul means when he says this? He is saying, listen, he's not, he is not saying that all your suffering leads to your good necessarily. This is one of the reasons why we get confused, especially as Christians. We go, okay, God, I trust you. You're going to work this out for my good. But let's be honest, not every one of our stories has a happy ending, does it? Some of our stories end up bad. I had some painful stories myself this year. We had Christmas with my family for the first time in seven years in December 2016. And my oldest brother, Tony, who uh, was quite obese from heavy drinking and eating, was feeling at a real low point of his life. Thankfully, my son, Garrett, got a chance to talk to him a little bit and encourage him, Uncle Tony, it's never too late, you know? There's still help available. And we thought, well, maybe that's a step forward. Maybe something's going to happen. And I got a phone call about three or four weeks later that he had died. I have no assurance that my brother, oldest brother Tony, repented and put his faith in Jesus. I don't know where he dwells right now. 
That's not a happy ending. It's not an easy thing. But Paul's not saying all the bad things that happen to us work out for good for us. He's saying, listen, all the bad things that happen for all of us collectively work out for the good of all of us collectively. That's those of us that are Jesus followers. So one of the things that God wants us to understand when we're in the midst of suffering is, listen, he wants to understand, listen, I can be using this suffering to help somebody else. Are you okay with that? Because that's what happened with Joseph. Joseph, I'm sure, was going, what are you doing, God? Especially after what happened with Potiphar's wife. Lord, what are you, I I made the best of a bad situation. I worked my way to the top. I only served my master faithfully, and now I'm going to prison for it? I had a chance to sleep with his wife. Probably nobody would ever have known, but I wanted to follow you, and I didn't do it, and now I get this? Did it work out for Joseph's good? In some ways it did, though he lost a lifetime. His father died pretty much right after he met Joseph again. But it did work out for the good of all of Egypt and all of Israel. Now, I, I, I'm saying this is, this is about hope because, listen, when we believe there's a God who is this big, guess what? It doesn't remove our suffering. It doesn't necessarily take our suffering away. And it definitely is not meant to devalue our suffering. It means even if I don't know how, I can believe that this all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-eternal, sovereign God is working things together for somebody's good. He's not wasting my pain. But not only that, listen. Other monotheistic religions could say a similar thing. Judaism would say a similar thing. But here's something unique about Christianity. That according to the the New Testament, according to the gospel, God isn't just bigger than we think. The God that we serve has also experienced our suffering. God's experienced our suffering. He suffered with us. First part of John's gospel makes it clear, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then later on it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on human flesh. Here's what it says about the Christ, about God the Son. It says, listen, since Christ himself, this is in Hebrew, since Christ himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we're being tested. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do yet did not sin. You think you're the only person. You think God doesn't know what it's like when you're thinking, God, where are you? What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows in this grand mystery of, of the three-in-one God who, where God the Son takes on flesh, and it is a mystery. There's a reality that God has experienced our suffering. Are you being abused? God the Son knew what it was like to be abused. Have you been rejected? God the Son knows what it's like to be rejected. Have you been misunderstood? Have you been so down and depressed that you sweat great drops of blood? Because God the Son knows what that's like. 
And this is not a like, oh, I'm one-upping you. This is him saying, don't you understand? I understand. Don't you know that I care? Don't you know that I know what your suffering is? I'm not distant from you or your suffering. I've suffered with you. This is why Jesus calls us to be those as his followers, to be those who alleviate suffering. This is why the whole reason, do you you realize that what was the underpinning, the cultural, philosophical underpinning for the NHS is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Did you know that? Did you know, listen, did you know the reason there is public education for all, the underpinning of that is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do we do good? What do we want to alleviate poverty? Because we, we, we worship a God who was rich but became poor that we might be rich in him. Why do we care about the sick? Because we worship a God who came and he healed the sick with a word, promising one day that all sickness, death, and sin would be done through his resurrection. He suffered with us. This is why we want to see allevi- suffered, suffering alleviating. It's not just, I want my suffering to end. It's what we desire all suffering to end. And we believe it's going to. Why? Not, not just because he suffered with us, but listen, because he suffered for us. The scripture says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Christ died for us. Do you guys listen? Do you realize that what Jesus did, when Jesus dies on that cross, he takes on the wrath of God that we deserve, all the punishment for the sins that we've done against others, for the suffering that we've caused? Jesus took all the punishment of that on himself so that we don't have to suffer that eternally, so that God could say, You're forgiven. But not only that, listen, because he took on that suffering and then he rose from the, get, the dead because he conquered death, he can say to us, listen, all the desire to see this world become what it's meant to be is guaranteed to happen. The world that we all want is guaranteed to happen. This is how the Bible ends. Because listen, we're, we're, we're talking about the God who's bigger than we think, but also the God who's experienced our suffering and the God who will end all suffering. Listen, this is what Revelation says. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Listen, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All, all these things are gone forever. Listen, you might go, that sounds nice, John, but it's a bit pie in the sky, isn't it? Is it? Does a pantheist have a better idea? Just ignore suffering. Eventually, it'll go away, and you'll become one with the universe and have no consciousness whatsoever. That sounds lovely. What about the atheist? Now, there's a lot of moral atheists. England excels at producing moral atheists who think we should do a lot to relieve suffering. Amen. Let's work with them. Let's do a lot to relieve suffering. Good, good stuff, right? But to what end? To what end? 
Because I'll tell you what, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I feel this a lot as a pastor. The more I, I seek to, to actually help people, to lay down my life for Christ's sake and the gospel, the more overwhelmed I am. I can't do it. There's too many needs. I'll never meet these needs. The need is so much bigger than the resource, unless your resource is God himself. Interesting, I'm going to ask the ushers to get ready. There are people who are going to pass out communion to get ready to pass out the elements of communion. Because communion really has to do with these last two things. It has to do with the fact that we have a God who's experienced our suffering and a God who will end all suffering. The scripture says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Paul, when Paul, the apostle Paul was given instructions about communion, about going to the Lord's table and remembering what Jesus has done. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. His death. We worship a God who has suffered with us and for us. He understands how serious our suffering is, whether it's mental, relational, physical, societal. He understands it. He has compassion on us for it. He's paid the price so it can be removed. But also, listen, he's coming again. Sometimes it seems like he should be coming any day now. And when he comes again, guess what? He's going to erase all injustice. When he comes again, we will finally have the world we all want. You know what communion is? Communion is us remembering that broken bread is his broken body. Through his brokenness, we're going to be made whole. That spilled, that, that little cup of, of grape juice is his spilled blood. Through his spilled blood, we're washed clean. And because of that reality, that time in history where Christ did this for us, we have hope for the future. We have hope. I want to challenge you guys as who are already Jesus followers. Do you have that hope? I know life's tough. I know your relationships aren't always good. I know you're wondering when God's going to answer those prayers you've been praying. I do understand that. But do you believe him when he says, wait, wait on the Lord? Do you believe him? Do you believe that, that, that he's working something good through your suffering that you might not even see until you get to eternity? Do you believe that? And for those of you who aren't believers, you're still wrestling with this Jesus stuff. You don't know what you believe about Jesus yet. Can I ask you a question? Do you have a better answer for suffering than this good news about Jesus? And I don't mean that to be harsh. I mean, seriously, thinking about it, what's a better answer than a God who pierced history, suffered with us, suffered for us, rose from the dead, promised eternal life, ascended to heaven, and has been changing the world through his people ever since? We can have hope and suffering. They're going to pass 